and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we're going to start with part one of environmental spending coverage during the state's joint budget hearing from our correspondent, Mark Dunley. And then we'll hear from Bria Barthel as she continues to highlight the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences Africana Film Series, which begins on Friday, February 13th. Afterwards, our very own Nature Lab coordinator, Ellie Irons, brings us a new series of interviews with the people involved in Ithaca's Soil Factory, a space for exploring interactions between social, arts, and scientific networks. Later on, Bria joins us once more. She brings us the monthly book picks of March with the Troy Public Library's new head of adult and reference services, Christian Jabot. Lastly, Victor Marks brings us an incredible story of resilience and inspiration from principal dancers Katerina and Oleksandr, whose lives were upended with the onset of the war in Ukraine. But first, here are the headlines. For the second time within a week, a text threat forced Albany academies to close school on Friday. The Times Union reports that a Saratoga County Sheriff Sergeant has filed a federal discrimination lawsuit against Sheriff Michael Zerlo and Saratoga County for refusing to accommodate his PTSD and epilepsy, diagnoses that doctors say were caused by his work in law enforcement. A $22,000 bonus that Albany County District Attorney David Soros awarded himself last year is generating controversy. The Times Union reports that the funds came from a grant meant to boost staff retention by rewarding prosecutors who are facing increased workloads due to the state's recent recent criminal justice reforms. The county comptroller and an outside law firm are examining the issue. Soros' salary of $202,000 is set by the state. An Albany priest, Michael Green, of St. Paul's Episcopal Church, has been charged with slashing the tires of an ex-employee and former romantic partner. Clean up after a freight train derailed Wednesday night in the village of Valley Falls is expected to continue into the weekend. Officials plan to reopen Route 67. Two of the 10 derailed train cars uh, could be... Sorry. (laughs) Gussie, calm down. Sit. You need to relax. (laughs) Sorry, we have a dog in the studio today. Um, uh, Yes, the train derailment in Valley Falls spilled nurdles, small, which are nurdles, which are small plastic pellets used as feedstock for plastic products. Two rail cars carrying the nurdles fell into the Hoosick River. And cleanup crews could be seen Friday morning vacuuming nurdles out of the rail cars and depositing them on a tarp on the ground off Highway 67. A video on the Concerned Citizens of Scattacoke Facebook page showed nurdles floating in the Hoosick River. Another rail car carrying oil also leaked into the river. Migrants housed at the Super 8 Motel in Rotterdam continue to file complaints about their living conditions. The Times Union reports that some migrants have begun receiving updates on their work authorization and immigration status, giving them some hope they will be able to find stable jobs and housing. The Gazette reports that the Schenectady City Council is revisiting a proposal to enact a moratorium on the establishment of new smoke shops in the city. A three-month moratorium seems likely. And that's all for the headlines. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, grassroots radio that builds community within the Capital Region. Our content is volunteer produced. To learn more on how you can get involved, go to mediasanctuary.org slash volunteer or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or give us a ring at 518-272-2390. Now for the first installment of this multi-part series, Mark Dunley brings us coverage of environmental spending during the state's budget hearing uh, that happened on uh, Wednesday evening, Wednesday, February 7th, and why there is a need for more climate action. The state budget hearing on the environment on February 7th started at 9.30 a.m. and stretched to the midnight hour. Lawmakers for hours grilled the heads of the state's various environmental, agriculture, park, and energy agencies, then listened to dozens of advocates outline critical changes needed to Governor Hochul's budget proposals. More money for critical projects such as climate, water, infrastructure, and other programs were raised. Hudson Mohawk Magazine has compiled the testimony of a number of the state's leading climate activists. While praising the governor for including parts of the New York Heat Act in the budget, there were calls for much faster action on climate as extreme weather continues to explode globally. Making polluters pay, converting the capital to 100% renewable energy, public power, and getting the state controller to divest from Exxon and other fossil fuel companies were cited. In the first of a two-part program, we hear from teenager Kino Arpels Josiah with Fridays for the Future New York, who asked, are we all going to die? Uh, Stefan Edel of New York Renews and Michael Hernandez of Rewiring America. Hi, thank you. My name is Keanu Arpels Josiah. I'm 18 years old and the policy co-lead with Fridays for Future New York City. Are we all going to die? This is the question that a classmate of mine asked me on June 6th last year. New York skies were a deep orange. Due to the climate crisis, our city looked indistinguishable from the apocalypse. Since we were in elementary school, the climate crisis has shaped my generation's perception of our futures and the future of the world. That future is happening now. In 2023 alone, we breathe air over 800% more polluted than what is considered safe. We saw our streets, our schools, and our homes flooded from record flash floods. We saw deadly snowfall. And while 2023 gave us the hottest summer in the history of the planet, it is likely to be the coolest one for the rest of our lives. So as temperatures soared, we organized. On September 17th, a cross-societal intergenerational coalition came together for the biggest march the state has seen since the start of the pandemic. 75,000 people took to the streets of Manhattan to say enough is enough and call for an end to the era of fossil fuels. Despite taking critical steps forward on climate in the last budget, New York remains miles away from answering that call. Miles away from the billions of dollars needed to be invested in action and miles away from implementing the mandates of the CLCPA. Now youth and people across the state are united in calling for this fiscal year 2025 budget to reflect the needs of the people, not those of the CEOs behind the fossil fuel industry. This means at minimum, the New York Heat Act, including the 6% of household income bill cap um, to start making heating renewable and finally affordable for all New Yorkers. The Climate Change Superfund Act to finally make polluters pay for a portion of the budget, a portion of the damage they're causing to our communities. The Climate Justice Budget Proposal of $1 billion for Shovel Ready Climate Action Fund 
appropriations to begin to invest in infrastructure and our survival. And critically, in a budget deficit, the Stop Climate Polluter Handouts Act to reclaim $330 million from some of the worst polluting aspects of the fossil fuel industry. Instead of implementing the aforementioned lower carbon fuel standard, which puts CLCPA and the action we need in direct danger through its extension of dangerous fuels, New York State must fulfill its responsibility to be a leader on climate this budget. If we fail to incorporate action through these provisions, irreversible, irreparable harm will continue to fall on our communities. Budgets represent our values. With the fiscal year 2025 budget, what will we value? As our communities continue to face the direct effects of soaring fossil fuel profits, as our skies turn orange, what will we value? With the clock ticking for climate action, with our communities, our generation calling out for justice, what will we value? Will this legislature choose people over profit, youth or fossil fuels? Our generation, our movement is looking to how this body responds. Thank you. Um, my name is Stefan Adel. I'm the Coalition Coordinator, Executive Director at New Yorker News Coalition. We're a coalition of more than 370 organizations around New York State working on climate <clears throat> and making this a great state for a long time to come. We have a whole series of priorities and a whole series of opinions that are in our detailed agenda. So I'm not going to go through the longer list. I'm going to focus in on two particular items. Um, we have a really core opportunity this year because last year we passed the Climate Action Fund. This was a really big step for the legislature and the governor to take. We created this structure that ensures good jobs, responsible contracting for funds that come in through climate fund, uh, climate action revenue. Now, we cannot continue to wait for the next thing to happen, right? For years we heard, we'll, we'll deal with climate funding, we'll deal with environmental funding when the Bond Act is finished. Now we're hearing when we have cap and re uh, invest revenue, when we get the federal dollars. And this is the moment where you have the best leverage to actually get it up and running. We heard amazing testimony earlier today about how hard it is to actually get programs working, get money moving. And we don't want to wait until we're collecting billions of dollars of cap, trade, and invest revenue to figure out how we get it out into communities. Right? That is a formula for people to be really unhappy and for us to lose this moment. So if I can put forward just one thing for you all to pay attention to, it's that this is the opportunity for that. Right? We don't need 10, many, several, probably many of you have seen me up here before talking about needing 10 or $15 billion. All we're asking for this year is something to get this program started. Whole array of things that can be done right now and people can see in their communities, see benefits in their communities, and get things moving. And the alternative to that is continuing to wait and see what happens next. We have a lot of thoughts and a lot of discussion going on in the state about cap, trade, and invest. And I'd also encourage all of you to really engage and use your leadership. It's going to be a really huge impact for this state. And there are tremendous concerns about doing it right. Uh, again, in our testimony, we go through a whole series of guardrails. But I'd encourage all of you to take this opportunity to lead. There's no debate about climate change. There's no debate that it is killing New Yorkers, that pollution is killing New Yorkers. And there is a strange discussion, I find, every year around climate funding where we start talking and we hear, well, we don't have enough money from ratepayers. We need general funds to go into this so that we can stop using the single most regressive tax in New York State to pay for all of our energy infrastructure. Uh, my name is Michael Hernandez, and I'm the New York Policy Director for Rewiring America. 
Uh, Rewiring America is a leading electrification nonprofit focused on electrifying our homes, buildings, uh, and communities. Uh, I'll start off by talking about the Affordable Gas Transition Act and the New York uh, Heat Act. Uh, Currently, the public service law drives the expansion of an expensive, inefficient gas system by establishing a utility obligation to supply gas to any customer upon request and charging existing ratepayers for the cost of new connections. The governor's proposed Affordable Gas Transition Act will correct this costly and harmful practice, uh, but it does not include the codification of the Public Service Commission's goal that no ratepayer pay more than 6% of their household income, and it doesn't have a timeline for implementation. The legislative one houses should accept the governor's proposal and modify it to codify the 6% household income goal and a timeline for implementation. Last year's enacted budget included $400 million uh, for the Empower Plus and the Energy Affordability Program, which helps low-income New Yorkers get off dirty, expensive fossil fuel combustion heating systems to clean, green, electric systems, and keeps their energy costs down. This year, the governor has cut this funding down to only $50 million. This cut will significantly impact how New Yorkers can receive this vital service. The legislature should match last year's $400 million appropriation. We also support the Renewable Energy Through Project Interconnection and Deployment, the RAPID Act. Uh, It's vitally important that we move forward with our transmission approvals and interconnection of renewable energy resources. Um, I just want to talk about the uh, implementation of the All Electric Buildings Act uh, that was enacted last year. Uh, The building sector is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in New York State. Uh, The Building Code Council, NYSERDA, have been uh, tasked with implementing, uh, incorporating the electrification of new construction into uh, the building code. They haven't done that yet. Um, it's, they've already gone through two versions. The third version is coming out in March. Uh, and so we really need uh, that All Electric Building Act to be in, as part of the energy code. Also, uh, they're supposed to include the recommendations of the Climate Action Council, as well as um, making sure that it is consistent with our greenhouse gas goals. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And you just heard coverage of the joint budget hearing that happened on Wednesday, February 7th. That was the budget committee with the environmental conservation committees in the state legislature. Uh, That hearing went for more than 12 hours, so plenty to discuss. And I know that this will be a multi-part series from our correspondent, Mark Dunley. Now for our second segment, Bria Barthel continues to dive into the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences Africana film series. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm delighted to be talking once again with Professor Kevin Hickey from the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, but we aren't talking about pharmacy or health or even sciences. Kevin Hickey is the coordinator of the Africana Film Series that's offered through one of his courses at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. In a previous segment, we talked about the first film in the series, and today we're going to focus on the second film. But first, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Hickey 
give us a, an overview of what the Africana Film Series is. Okay, Bria, thank you so much. A pleasure to be back. And uh, actually, there will be a little bit of health issues. It takes place in a hospital. Uh, the film, the second film of the series on the 13th of February. But first, a few words about the about the overall series. It has been going on since 2005. And each year we watch three films on a particular theme. And the theme this year is liberty and justice. Our first two films, both the one from last week and the one of this week, take place in these pockets of possibility. Uh, last week taking place uh, in Mali, right after Mali's independence from France in 1960. And uh, this week's film taking place in Tunisia in the late summer of 2011. So about six months after the Tunisian uprising, the so-called also known as uh, Jasmine Revolution that really ignited the entire Arab Spring. So that ties in with the overall themes of this year. And our uh, third film, which will be on the 20th of February, is on the poet, writer, freedom fighter, or terrorist, depending on whom you're asking, uh, Carlos Marigea, who uh, was important in in his role fighting the military government U.S. supported, no surprise there, the military dictatorship that uh, existed in Brazil from 64 to 85. And uh, looking at this individual and uh, not really dealing with it in the film, but he did inspire a, a lot of other similar groups through his writing. But anyway, that's for next week. I believe our focus for this week is on a son, a fee in uh, French, which is uh, taking place in Tunisia. And should I just continue on and say a few words about that? Well, first, um, for people who did, who may not have heard the earlier segment, perhaps you can mention what your interest is in Africa. Well, my interest in Africa is uh, expressions of culture. So film, literature, music, to some extent dance. I really have no expertise in dance, so I guess I shouldn't even mention that. As well as outside of Africa. So also literature, film, music in the Caribbean and uh, African-American. So for instance, I recently published a very big article on uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is, uh, of course, the famous uh, African-American painter. And um, I also deal with issues of space. That just means how the land and the everything on the land can affect thinking and culture, uh, both for the people who live in it and for people who are in other places. So, for instance, the the uh the fact that for lots of people africa which is a space is thought of by unfortunately many people as this sort of homogeneous space without hundreds of different cultures and over 50 countries and um and so that affects how people think about it but it also can affect uh, the people in africa themselves in terms of 
what does and doesn't happen in Africa because we're all interconnected. And those who heard the earlier segment know you have a rather unique perspective on the continent, not the country, the continent. When I was working with international students at RPI, somebody said they had overheard someone at a party saying, oh, you're from Africa. I forget. What's the capital of Africa? (laughs) I forget that, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Africa pretty well. Just briefly remind us of your experience. Well, I, I've uh, taken students uh, three times to Senegal for uh, study abroad trips, and I also spent four years bicycling across Africa. I went to about half the countries. The first two years I was by myself, except for a brief visit from my brother, and the third and fourth years uh, I was bicycling with my wife. So I do have some sense. and. Of course, since then, I say of course, because this is what I teach, what I publish in, uh, I have spent uh, pretty much every day since that bicycle trip reading about and learning about uh, Africa and Africans outside of the continent. And this is the 19th year or the the 19th film series. You said you took a year off because that COVID thing, speaking of health. Mm -hmm. The website I see has a list of all of the movies that you have shown. It's three movies each year going back to 2005. So quite an interesting list of films. The ones I noticed for this year are from uh, two of them are from 2021. One's from 2019. So you're getting really recent movies that may not be available elsewhere, right? Yes, yes. And we also see, um, if if you think about the history of film in Africa, we see uh, a tremendous shift. Uh, I mean, if you think about film in the United States beginning in, say, the teens, you know, the acting for the first few decades was very much like the acting on a stage. And so you had the same sort of evolution in African film, which is that in the early African films, the acting also seemed for, I guess, your average viewer a little bit stiff because, or a little bit awkward because it was acting more as if you were on a stage. And so that whole transition from acting in film like you're on a stage versus acting in film like you're in a film, which is dramatically different, uh, was much more compressed in Africa. So we see uh, with the contemporary films, which we have three of this year, you know, you see no difference in terms of the styles of acting from other films in other parts of the world. Now, from Professor Hickey's comments about his bicycle trip through half the countries in Africa, his comments about the spaces and landscapes, the cinematic techniques and the, the development of film in Africa, he's quite a knowledgeable guide to all of these. So some people might be thinking, well, I can just stream the films if I have the titles. And yet the pieces that I most enjoy about this are that there's an introductory comments from from Professor Hickey about each film. There's an amazingly detailed handout about each film. And the post-screening reflections, tell us a little bit about that part of of the presentation. Well, there are usually 
45 to 70 people attending each film. And many of those people are from the area and uh, grew up in Africa or the Caribbean or Europe or South or Central America. And so we have very interesting, robust conversations. It always amazes me bringing their own interests and expertise and background and history. They will see something in film that I did not see, even though I watched it a number of times, putting together the handout. And, and then, of course, we have sometimes differing takes on the film, which can, can lead to very congenial but often robust conversations of, of polite disagreement. And uh, that's really just lovely. And uh, many of the people who show up have been attending regularly since 2005. So they've seen many of the films. And, um, and so that's, for me, the highlight of each evening are, is the approximately 20 minutes we take after watching the film to have a wide-ranging discussion. Okay, so in the last minute, I just want to repeat that the upcoming film on Tuesday, February 13th at 7 p.m. in the uh, Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences Student Center, room 201, is Unfis, a son from Tunisia for 2021. Dr. Hickey, great talking with you again. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And we'll be back about the third film in, in another week. Bye-bye. All right, Bria, thank you. And that was part two of Bria Barthel's coverage of the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences Africana Film Series. And now we tune into Nature Lab coordinator Ellie Iron's newest series on Ithaca Soil Factory. In this first installment, she speaks with Rebecca Nelson. I'm Ellie, Nature Lab's community science educator. Today, I'm excited to kick off an interview series with um, folks from the Soil Factory, which is an art science initiative in Ithaca, New York, whose activities have parallels with what we do here at the Sanctuary and Nature Lab. Today, I'm talking with Rebecca Nelson, who is both a professor in the College of Agriculture and Life, Life Sciences at Cornell University and works with the Soil Factory. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Ellie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the Soil Factory and maybe about what you do there? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Rebecca Nelson and I'm on uh, the faculties of Plant Science and uh, Global Development at Cornell. I've been here for a couple of decades. Before that, I worked for a few years in the Philippines and then Peru. It's only this last very couple of years that I've been really focusing hard on this issue of circular economy and bionutrient circularity and sort of how communities can work together to take a, a look at the way we live and think about how we can live in a way that's more fun, less hazardous to the world and, you know, sort of more protective of the future. And is that where Soil Factory comes in? Is that kind of one of the places to play around and experiment with that vision of the world? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the Soil Factory came into being, I think it's around the time that I was really looking to sort of, you know, appreciatively look back on my days as a hardcore corn geneticist and international researcher, but sort of looking to be a little bit more community oriented, a little bit more local, having been very non-local for a long time, and get to know the people and places and issues around me more, partly so that when I continue to work abroad, 
I actually have a hands-on knowledge of what I'm talking about. And there's sort of a more authentic, let's do this together, as opposed to before I was, you know, the scientific director for our program, it was more a higher level role, if you will. And I was really longing to get my hands dirty and and know what I was talking about at this very sort of more, you know, knows how to do it role uh, way. So the Soil Factory came into being, I think each one of us who was involved in starting it up maybe has a different origin story. I see it as something where like a, a few friends of mine were in the mood to do art science stuff, or in the mood to kind of get off campus, be more less rule bound or whatever, and more engaged. And, and so I was sort of in the same mood. So there's one day, Johannes Lehmann, who's a key cons- co-conspirator, he was putting on an art exhibition of his own African art at this space, at this warehouse downtown. And when I went to the exhibition, it was like November in the middle of the pandemic, freezing cold, you know, and I brought some snacks and I'm like, oh, hey, I recognize this. This has the place belonging to a friend of mine who we were in the Philippines together decades earlier, working at the International Rice Research Institute. And I, so there's these guys that work on biochar together, you know, are sort of like these people that are old friends, yet don't spend that much, you know, don't have a chance to spend that much time together, sort of all wanting to move in some sort of direction like that. And we were all sort of in the mood to be more community-based, more activist, more, uh, you know, kind of out there. Um, in my case, I also just wanted to get a place where I could just have more freedom to operate, fewer, you know, regulatory hurdles to making large or whatever, you know, just kind of low-end activities that are really hard to pull off on campus. So, so we sort of um, decided eventually to rent this space from our friend who kind of puts up with us. And that took a while. And then by now it's a very active, you know, lots of stuff going on. There's some thematic coherence, but not that much. Like there's a lot of stuff on the circular bio-nutrient economy stuff, sort of arts. And it, but it's not, it's sort of whatever, whoever at the same time. You know, I, I feel like for the sanctuary, it's also like there's a name of media, but then there's stuff that's not media. You know, so it's kind of like that, that it's kind of and, and, and. And there's some, attraction to you know what's going on and some freedom to to spin that off in whatever direction you want so we sort of recognize that if we have our own thing we're trying to develop it really interacts with people locally but also brings in people from weirdly in all sorts of different places including you know different countries and whatever and that we see this like commonality between what we're doing what sanctuary is doing we went to some art science session in new york city and there we felt you know, kinship there. And then one of the people presenting in the same session was having something like that at the Rockaways. And we're just sort of feeling like this network of networks is a really powerful way of inspiring each other, way of getting ideas, way of just, again, expanding the role of like, like-minded or friendly people that we're getting to interact with. So anyway, very thank you for hosting us. That was lovely. Yeah. So yeah, we had a, a sanctuary open house, as, as many of our listeners probably know, and we were delighted to have this delegation from Ithaca that included Rebecca and many of her colleagues at the Soil Factory, which is what led us to be trying out this interview series. And I think um, many people listening, um, and certainly many of my colleagues and volunteers at the sanctuary can relate to this idea of wanting to focus our work locally, and also for people who've been in an academic environment wanting to go outside of the academy. So I think there's a lot of commonality there. I think probably plenty of our listeners know what biochar is, but could you give a quick overview of what biochar is? Because it's a beautiful thing that we would like to work on more and, and haven't. Um, 
And so, yeah. next to that concept of soil factory. <laughs> right, right, right. So we, we happen to have like those two guys that I mentioned in my first encounter with the place where we're at, they're both experts in this particular thing. So they can speak to it better than I can. But the basic idea is that if you, uh, if you something like burn, but you're sort of similar to combustion, you're, you're quote burning, it's called pyrolysis if you do it in a low oxygen environment. And so what you have at the end of doing that, if you take an organic material, carbon-based material, and you pyrolyze it, so you combust it in a low oxygen environment, you're left with the kind of carbon structure that was there. You've, you've sort of lost half the organic matter, but you've kept half of it in a very sort of stable, permanent, and I would say beautiful form. <laughs> and basically the same stuff as uh, charcoal is, you know, made by a similar process. If you're making charcoal, you're kind of combusting it in a low oxygen environment. But uh, you can do this with a lot of carbon-based material. And you, so again, you retain around, you know, half of the energy and carbon there, and it'll be stable in soil. And it, it has all these wonderful properties as a soil amendment. You know, it can, this sort of very porous, high surface area material can be a great housing complex for microbes that can help you keep your nutrients in, in motion, build up that microbial community, it'll help you hold water, it does all these great sort of services for the soil. So that's a, it's it's sort of a carbon sequestration tool, but, and it's also a really build organic soil organic matter tool. And that's particularly important, you know, in tropical environments, it's really hard to move the needle on soil organic matter. Like in African soils, a lot of us at the soil factory are like Africa oriented in our research and, mm -hmm. and other outreach activities. And, you know, we, we were just last month, spent some weeks there in our January intercession at a nice big meeting with 80 some people in the circular bionutrient economy network there. And, you know, so we're really, again, it's a network of networks. Um, in those tropical soils, it's, they're really low carbon soils, so it's really hard to raise a good crop, very subject to drought stress. And here, you, you know, it's a really cool way and we could start to see things happening there where even you know, smallholder farmers can get carbon credits for, Pyrolyzing their own corn stalks in their own cornfield, getting that big to their own soil, then maybe like KLM or whoever yeah. brought us over there is paying them money to do that. So we're starting yeah. to see how it could actually work. And that's really exciting for us. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we've always been, of course, interested in compost on our block. And I think biochar is like another thing that has potential in the future and, and could be an interesting, like hands-on fun civic science project even. We just have about a minute left. Um, I know that you have a range of programs at the Soil Factory, like film screenings, workshops, an artist residency program, even a land restoration project, I think, called the Marshy Garden that I saw on your website. I hope to speak with some of your colleagues down the line about these projects, but maybe right now you could just tell us a little bit about an event or a program that you're particularly excited about, either that's happened or that's coming up? My favorite and the one I put a lot of time into uh, is a, a different garden, not the marshy garden, which is more a um, pollinator garden over yonder a bit. I've got a garden that's, it's along the line of something I'm calling oasis spaces. It's trying to prototype a method for in a contaminated urban, you know, small postage stamp place. How can we come, you know, with some of these organic resources in a boom, boom, boom fashion and and support a community to design their own beautiful little garden. The model that we have going now that I really uh, am working on is, you know, a layer of wood chips to protect you from the contaminated soil below, then build your frames and your play structures and your lounge area out of straw bales, fill it with your compost and local organic matter, 
you know, ha have a toilet, the pee goes into the straw bales to get them ready to be composed next year. This sort of this methodology that can, you know, a bit of this uh, may or may not be fully locally, I mean, legal or whatever, but it's very impermanent, could be a verdant little space that you can readily design in a very plastic, easygoing way. So that's, that's kind of my favorite <laughs> activity. That all sounds, again, very applicable in the space that we work in um, at the Sanctuary and Nature Lab and to my own work. So delightful talking with you, and I look forward to continuing these conversations. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks so much, Ellie. Take care. And you just heard Nature Lab coordinator Ellie Irons. That was the newest series on Ithaca Soil Factory, and Ellie was speaking with Rebecca Nelson. If you're just tuning in, I'm Alexis. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, playing on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and always streaming online at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media located in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content with friends and family. Find all of today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org HMM. For her first month of book recommendations for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Christian Jabot, the new head of adult and reference services at the Troy Public Library, selected an interesting range of recent books. We're joined again by Bria Barthel, who has more on Christian's selections. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again for my monthly uh, interactions with people at Troy Public Library. Ian Houck has moved on to other uh, location, but the new head of adult services and reference services is with me, Christiane Jabot. Christiane, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, thank you for inviting me. And tell us a little bit about yourself. You said you started here just a few weeks ago? Yes, my first day was on January 23rd, and I think that was a Tuesday, and I've been um, coming in every day ever since, so trying to still get my job under my belt. Uh, I'm still in training, things like that, but uh, having a great time. But you, you mentioned that you were at Cahoe's library before this, so you're not new to libraries, just new to Troy. Correct. I obtained my library degree in August of 2020 uh, during the COVID <laughs> pandemic, and uh, I had been uh, interning at the Cohoes Public Library, so I obtained a position there and worked there for three years, and then um, this position came up, and so I applied for it, and here I am. So, Had they warned you that you'd, you might get suckered into doing monthly book reviews for the radio? Absolutely not. <laughs> But that's okay. <laughs> well, it looks like you've got some interesting books and that you're on top of this. So tell us, what book do you want to talk about first? I wanted to talk about The Con Queen of Hollywood, The Hunt for an Evil Genius to start with. Uh, the reason being is that one of our displays this month is called Valen Crimes. And so we're focusing on different crimes, criminals, and stuff through the month of February, a little take on the Valentine theme. Uh, they're not necessarily all, you know, crimes of passion or anything, but... 
This book struck me as rather interesting. Uh, it's a journalist by the name of uh, Scott C. Johnson who uh, wrote about this uh, particular uh, con queen um, in the, uh, what was it, the journal that he was writing in, The Hollywood Reporter, and uh, basically just kept doing research and research and then finally met with the con artist uh, who had basically uh, pretended to be different um, notable people or relations to notable people and uh, basically just got money from hundreds of people and just uh, ripped them off, basically. So a very interesting story. And this is a true story. It says it's a memoir? It's a true story. Yep, absolutely. What time period was this queen conning people in? Uh, I actually haven't read the book, so you've caught me on that, which is perfectly fine. Uh, But it did come out uh, in 23, I believe, and so it's a fairly recent book. And so I just thought it would be a wonderful, um, you know, for those who are into Hollywood, we've got the, you know, Oscars coming soon, things like that. And um, just, you know, just kind of a cool little, little story. True story, that is. Very cool. And it starts out, the author's note, in the spring of 2018, I received a tip about a case of identity theft in Hollywood, an imposter was running amok around town, co-opting the identities of prominent female executives. Looks very interesting. Thanks for calling it to our attention. Absolutely. I noticed uh, um, that there was a quote about it, which I thought was gr- wonderful, was engrossing as anything by Agatha Christie, an unset- as unsettling a-, a novel as a Stephen King, and reported with vigorous empathy that leaves Truman Capote in the dust. I just thought that was just so well written. I had to, I had to put that in there. <laughs> and the theme is Valen Crimes? What was yes. the... I don't know what the thought was behind it, because the staff that works here in the reference department, we have four other people, um, basically do different displays in the library, and it was preset. And I think some people, you know, every year around Christmas, we do cookies and baking displays, and then in spring, it's gardening and things like that. And I think it was just a chance to do something a little bit different. So that's probably where it came from. Okay, so you're setting your your mark on Val, uh, on a Troy Public Library. Yes, yes, I think that's true. <laughs> so terrific, and the next one. So the next one that we have is called Outsider Stories of Growing Up Black in, in the Adirondacks. Uh, it's by a local author, Alice Payton Green. And it was just brought to my attention today by uh, a, someone who does all of our cataloging that we just received it. It's just been added. And it's essentially um, began with uh, a community conversation in Witherby uh, in the Adirondacks with the small hamlet community. And um, you know people were just talking about race relations and she thought it might be, well, that she thought she realized that writing a book about her experiences would be good. Uh, so it's basically about um, the Adirondacks in the 1950s and 60s, and the premise is, you know, whether blacks are in that area are considered still outsiders or whether they're uh, welcome with open arms um, by the white community because the Adirondacks are prominently white. So my thinking was that uh, sometimes with the Black Lives Movement or even civil rights, we often see images of things happening in large cities and all this, you know, commotion and, and, and stuff that sometimes things happen in a smaller area as well. And it might uh, give us a different perspective, you know, something a little bit more personal, uh, since many of us will go to the Adirondacks to enjoy the hikes and, you know, all the activities there. So. And the name threw me for a moment, Alice Payden Green, but it is indeed the Alice Green of the Center for Law and Justice. 
I hadn't realized she wrote a book on this. So thank you for for introducing me to yet another interesting book. So that's Outsider Stories of Growing Up Black in the Adirondacks. And the third book? The third book we have is The Parrot and the Igloo, uh, Climate and the Science of Denial. So that's by New York Times bestselling author David Lipsky. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, it's, it's a documentation of the last 70 years of denying climate science, which we've known about since the 50s, and how, you know, you can look at different um, things happening in our times that pretty much as of 21, 19 of the 20 hottest years on record have been since 2000. So ultimately, how much can we continue to deny, you know, what's going on? So it's basically, there's some humor in there, but ultimately it's about, you know, from his perspective anyway, the truth of everything. There was a comment I heard, I don't remember who said it, but they were talking about uh, when they were saying that last year was the hottest year on record. They said they hoped that the hottest year on record would not be the coldest year on record that their kids knew. Right, exactly, yeah. Okay, so that's The Parrot and the Igloo, Climate and the Science of Denial by David Lipsky. And you've got another one? I do. Uh, So ultimately, uh, Valentine's Day or February, we tend to talk about couples and coupling and, you know, all the wonderful things that happen with that. But I thought it might be a nice idea to focus on the love of friends and friendship. So Robin Carr came out with a book called The Friendship Club, and uh, it's basically... Uh, women of an older age, uh, 50s or more, uh, they're either widowed, divorced, or what have you, and uh, ultimately they're kind of back in the modern romance game. It's a different game than what they used to play, and just the struggles and all that, but ultimately they have each other to support each other during the low times or the high times, and I just thought that that was a wonderful thing that, you know, it's love is is a is an, a verb it's an action so we can love many people and so valentine's day you know if you're going to celebrate you know buy chocolates or flowers or write a poem for anybody that you want and it doesn't have to be the romantic love that we associate with so we don't want to diminish that but you know let's work on um you know friendships so as a lifelong single person i appreciate that selection And then one more? Yes, just the last one I have. Uh, It's a Thomas Perry novel called Hero. Uh, It's basically a cat and mouse kind of story. So if you like that, I thought I would throw in a little bit of, um, you know, a mystery type type novel uh, because mysteries are wonderful, like history is wonderful. And so ultimately, this is a woman who's a security guard who basically foils a robbery and then she has a mob boss going after her and then her boss gets shot instead of her. So she loses her contract and all these things happen. And so it's, it's one of those stories that, you know, is she going to make it? Is she not going to make it? You know, kind of thing. And I just love those. Uh, it got a star review. So I thought, you know, I'd throw it in there for something a little bit fun for those of you not interested in nonfiction, not interested in, you know, some of the romance stuff, but uh, something a little bit more, you know, challenging and engaging. So. And it looks like these are all pretty recent books? Yes. Uh, all the books uh, pretty much are in uh, 2023. I believe one or two might be from 2024. So we're just starting to catalog many of the books that we ordered at the end of the year. So um, many things will be coming out. We definitely have a lot of romance, if you're interested. We definitely have a lot of uh, things that are out there that celebrate uh, Black History Month and the Civil Rights Movement and all that. So if you're, you know, depending on what you want, we have a variety of different things. So Great. 
And thank you so much. That again is Christiane Gibault, the new head of adult services and reference services at Troy Public Library. Stop by and say hello to her. She's delightful to talk with. And it looks like she, she can recommend lots of other types of books too. And uh, tell her you heard it on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Bria Barthel. Great talking with you, Christian. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And a huge thanks to Bria and Christy Ann. We look forward to what March has in store. All right, rounding out the show tonight. Now we hear from uh, today, tonight, depending on when you're listening. Uh, now we hear from Victor Max Valentine, who spoke with principal dancers Katarina and Alexander, who have assisted hundreds of displaced Ukrainian dancers, helping to keep them safe while performing their art and connecting this diaspora to one another while their homeland of Ukraine is at war. I am speaking with Katrina Kuhar and Oleksandr Stoyanov, Ukrainian artists who escaped the war and are now based in and are touring in the United States. A warm welcome and thank you for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you too, Victor. I understand you've been doing numerous charity events you managed to bring your children to safety. How did you begin to form uh, the uh, arrangements to make that happen? And did you have any assistance with that? Oh, you know, Victor, uh, when the war started, uh, we first months, uh, our main, uh, um, no, our main idea uh, it was uh, uh, help to uh, help for uh, Ukrainian ballet children and their family. Uh, maybe for one, uh, one for one month, Katerina uh, and me we take outside from uh, take outside from Ukraine more than two hundred uh, ballet students uh, and give give for them uh, new. Uh, New safety place uh, for get some ballet class because uh, we all the time uh, had calls uh, from their um, uh, families for their um, for children and they was crying in abroad and ask in different country um, us uh, to help them to find some place uh, for have just uh, like ballet class because when uh, um, Ballet artist, it's like sportsman. Uh, you have all the time uh, take your body in a good shape. Um, that's why. And of course, when uh, uh, ballet children stopped uh, to to make their classes, uh, uh, stopped studying, uh, of course they moved, and all this situation damage uh, them inside. Yeah, and they lost condition, of course. Um... And of course, we try to find for them a safety. Uh, place um, and of course everybody everyone uh, think about war will stop one week two week and war will stop and everybody uh, wants to come back at home that's why of course we um, find for them place and help them yeah and now uh, these children study in berlin and paris in the united states but many in, of them come yeah. back at home because we have uh, now in Kiev, uh, uh, 
200 uh, children and uh, in our campus because we also have uh, children uh, in um, Kiev State Ballet College when I uh, head of um, not children just from Kiev. We have uh, children from all Ukraine and we have a big campus. When war started, uh, we was in uh, Europe and our children was in Ukraine. And first, uh, before we um, uh, meet each other, uh, it was three long uh, crazy days. It, it was harder, harder days in our life. You know, it's uh, if you want, I can uh, give you this story uh, how we how we meet each other in uh, different borders in Poland and Hungary. Oh, definitely, yes, please. Um, yeah, uh, February twenty fourth, when war started, uh, we received a call from our babysitter at five a.m. and uh, she was crying and say, I don't know what, what's happened. There is a rocket, uh, there is a uh, bomb uh, explosion, and uh, I am al alone here with uh, Anastasia. Uh, I think war started, what I can do. And our babysitter, she's old, and she don't have driver license, she can drive, and, uh, and me and Katrina, and we also was... had a flight ticket in this uh, in 24th of uh, February. It's five o'clock evening. Uh, it, it was Nisa Kiev. Mm -hmm. So we just uh, uh, morning up to uh, prepare every our things uh, to go home. Yeah, but of course, all uh, when we started, all airports closed, uh, and because. Uh, um, Russia tried to destroy it, our airports. Um, yes, yes and... it was a shock uh, for us. We can't eat, we can't understand what we have to do. We yeah. can't breathe. And... and by the car, uh, distance from Kiev to our place, when we went, it's more than uh, 3,000 kilometers. It's more than uh, 60,000, uh, 600 miles, 16 hundred miles yeah and uh, uh we called for our friend and asked them to help uh, our babysitter and our daughter to go uh outside from ukraine close to the uh, mm, poland border yeah first our friends say sorry sorry we are on our way we can't go back uh, we call another call to another our friend and they say us we no, we nearby by our car uh, by our car you have just 30 minutes we can't wait more if your babysitter and daughter can come uh, during uh, 30 minutes we, we can take them of course our daughter uh, cry and say no i can't go without my dog without my puppy uh, and oh, katrina cried non-stop non um, and uh, for our um, son, uh, now he is um, uh, 14, uh, we get him uh, with our another um, friend uh, from Hungary uh, boarding. And uh, it was um, uh, traffic by car, like uh, 40 kilometers, and uh, he, uh, he go uh, walk like eight hours before and it was his birthday 
Uh. And when uh, we uh, pick up him, I, of course, I, I, I cry and I hug him and he say like, oh, mother, why are you crying? And now uh, two or three days and the war will stop and we will come back at home because I have a birthday today. And my friend waiting for me. I have to make a big uh, party. Uh, party, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's uh, in this month's uh, start will start third year of our war. Uh, I understand at this moment you are performing the ballet Giselle. Yeah. Correct. Um, how do you prepare yourself for a performance uh, with knowing that such things are occurring in your home country? I, I, I know it's already a lot of work to prepare mentally and physically. Oh, Victor, I think um, now uh, the most powerful weapon is art. And uh, we use the art to share uh, the real picture of what is happening in Ukraine and to provide our support to those who need it the most, children involved in uh, ballet. And um, of, of course, um, this uh, weapon of Grand Kiev Ballet is a dance which help uh, to tell not only about the high art of um, country, uh, but also about the brutal war in Ukraine. Every, everyone uh, do the best to help the motherland uh, being on own front line. And this is our front line, our culture, cu- culture front line. From the first day of the war, um, team of uh, Grand uh, Kiev Ballet has uh, held a lot of charity tours in uh, different countries. And for example, where war start, uh, we use uh, um, first friends and after we make a charity uh, big tour in Norway, like solidarity tour and um the ar- artists of our ballet company are dancing around the world uh, such as um national opera in oslo we um with alex uh, had uh, gala performances charity gala performances in uh, opera nationale de paris and uh, our performances visited by royal families politicians and celebrities around the world and of course we use uh, and especially when we go uh, in Latin America, we use all the time uh, speech before uh, performances. And we talk about uh, war. We talk about real situation which happens with our countries. For more information on their performances this month at The Egg and the Palace Theatre, go to www.grandkievballet.com. Dot com dot ua. That's grand k y i v ballet dot com dot ua. And that was Victor Valentine with principal dancers Katarina and Alexander, 
who have been assisting hundreds of displaced Ukrainian dancers. That's it for our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Alexis. Our engineer tonight today was Marshall Hildreth. Thank you to all of our amazing volunteers who made today's episode possible. And as always, thank you to our listeners.